The scripture this morning comes from the book of Jonah, chapter 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go in the, into the city, going a day's walk, and he cried out, Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his throne, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, no human being or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, nor shall they drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. Chapter 3 begins with shades of chapter 1. It's almost as if God has hit a reset button, extending grace upon grace, willing to forget about the fact that until now, Jonah has proven to be a pretty lousy prophet. But this time, finally, Jonah gets it right. After a long detour, including the belly of a whale, Jonah finally makes it to Nineveh. And there, the once lousy prophet becomes perhaps the most effective preacher the world has ever known. His sermon is short and to the point. Forty days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's eight words in English. It's only five in Hebrew. Five words. The prophet Isaiah needed 66 chapters. Jeremiah needed 52. Ezekiel, 48. And Amos, good old Amos, even he needed nine full chapters. But Jonah only needs five words. Forty days and Nineveh's toast. And unlike all the other prophets, the ones who needed chapters upon chapters and years upon years, the people of Nineveh hear him and heed him. And it's not just the common folk, people like you and me who pay attention to Jonah. When the king hears the word, he stands up, he removes his robe, and he covers himself in sackcloth. And finally, he sits down in ashes. 
I have been preaching for 11 years now and no one has ever once reacted with such fervor to a single thing I've said. You've got to laugh at the drama of it all, especially because it turns out it's not enough just for the king to descend into sackcloth and ashes. He says, by royal decree, humans and animals alike will fast, and humans and animals alike shall be covered in sackcloth. I told you this story was funny. This is funny. Actually, this is absurd. Animals fasting, animals in sackcloth. Whatever pet you have at home, can you imagine dressing them in sackcloth and then having them sit in ashes all while you refuse to feed them for days? It would not go well. And now imagine trying to do that to horses and camel and oxen. For a prophet who didn't want the job assigned to him, who ran away from it as far as he possibly could, and who finally slunk into town only because he still had the smell of whale guts in his nose to remind him of the alternative. Five words later, Literally every living being is repenting in the most dramatic way possible. So put a pin there for just a moment. We're not done with Jonah, not by a long shot, but think about the king for just a moment now. The leader of the city, the leader of a capital city of a dominant land, hears a few words from a guy he's never heard of at all, but who speaks perhaps not with authority exactly, but with the weary wisdom of someone who has learned the cost of ignoring the word of the Lord. Something compels the king to listen. He listens and he commands everyone and everything under his command to listen to. And then he says, who knows? Who knows, God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. Who knows? Say what you want about the Assyrians and say what is probably deserved about that king up until now. When he says, who knows, I think that he expresses as honest an encapsulation of faith as I've ever heard. I can't tell you for sure, he's saying, but from what I know about God, it's certainly worth giving it our very best effort. Somehow, at some point, maybe in the past, maybe right in the present moment, the king has learned that God is rather unpredictable. And that if God's grace is enough to send a fishy-smelling prophet into their midst, well, maybe God can do even more than that. Who knows? It's a statement that is not riddled with certainty. I find that to be theologically healthy. It is a statement riddled with hope. Who knows? When it comes to God, you just never know what sort of grace and mercy might show up. 
The king, who is supposed to be the enemy in this story, understands that so quickly it makes our heads spin. In our hero Jonah, the worst prophet turned best preacher ever, the one who should understand that better than anyone, given that God has shown him grace and mercy at least three times already in this little story alone, given that he watches the king respond to his words and change the way they are living, given all of that, do you think Jonah understands? You'd think so, and you'd hope so, but you'd be wrong. Chapter 3 ends on this hopeful note. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Now this ought to be one of the biggest, brightest banner moments in all of Scripture. It ought to be enough to vault Jonah into the prophet hall of fame. Except that Jonah gets in his own way yet again. I'm jumping ahead just a bit to the first verse of chapter 4. It follows immediately after that remarkable declaration that God's grace and mercy is real, that it is realer than real. And there we read, but this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. In the past two weeks, I've said that when the word of God comes to you, it comes as a calling word, and it comes as a claiming word. It's a word that comes to you because you belong to God, and God loves you with a love that never lets go. And Jonah has learned this for himself over and over again in just a few days. In fact, he praised and thanked God for that very exact thing from the belly of the whale. But now, now that same word that came to him comes to the Ninevites too. Now remember, Jonah is from the people of Israel. And the Assyrians are the enemies of Israel. The Assyrians have caused immense devastation to Israel's land and livelihood. And Nineveh is the capital city. Nineveh is the center of everything and everyone who has caused such pain for Jonah's people. And now Jonah is watching God treat them with grace and mercy. The very same grace and mercy that God has offered Jonah. The very same. This was displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. Now, because we are such amazing examples of the perfect Christian faith here, I am sure that each and every one of us reads that or hears that and thinks, oh, Jonah, that's not what you should do. I am sure that none of us can relate to that in the slightest, right? Think of it this way. Harken back to your school days, whether it was many years ago or just a few days ago, and remember what would happen to you internally when the teacher would announce a group project. Now, some folks thought group projects were the best thing ever. 
Most of the people I know, and I confess I count myself among them, hated group projects. Group projects never meant that the work was equally distributed and everyone contributed. No, it meant that a couple of folks in the group who were motivated to get a good grade overcompensated for the ones that couldn't have cared less because at the end of the project, it didn't matter who did what, everyone got the exact same grade anyways. In my younger days, at least, the group project was the ultimate form of injustice. Now, I bet that at least some of you are having some feelings about that right now, even years after the fact. And those sorts of feelings are pretty close to what Jonah feels when he sees that Nineveh isn't toast after all. Jonah's problem is similar to the problem with the way I, at least, viewed group projects. Before we even began, I would assume that I would have to work harder and longer to make up for the slackers in my group. And while my assumptions about my workload may have proven to be true, not always, but sometimes, a dangerous undercurrent ran beneath that way of thinking. You see, believing that I would carry a significant portion of the project's burden meant I was creating this narrative in my head, a narrative that allowed me to feel superior to my classmates. Similarly, Jonah was able to feel superior to the Ninevites. Not because of grades, naturally, but because, well, he wasn't off wrecking lives and plundering lands like they were. He could tell himself that he was better than them. He could tell himself that God smiled upon him way more than God smiled upon them, and that he was certainly more important to God than they were. He could tell himself all sorts of things, until he actually went to Nineveh and watched them repent quickly and watched God forgive them immediately. It's a hard lesson to learn that no one is any more worthy of God's grace than anyone else. It's a hard lesson for Jonah, and it's a hard lesson for us too, because I think that every one of us even those of you who don't have quite so much baggage around group projects as I do. I think that every one of us has experienced some moment, some moment, even if it's fleeting, we have all experienced some moment where the perception we have of ourselves is that I am somehow more important than you that I am of more value than you, that I understand better than you. In a school project, it's relatively harmless. When it's let out into the world, it's dangerous. This sort of distorted perception is behind the deep polarization in our country. Republicans versus Democrats, liberals versus conservatives, red versus blue, us versus them. Use whatever language you want. It's language that divides us. The Democratic National Convention was two weeks ago, 
the Republican National Convention finished up this past week. And on both sides of the aisle, at different times and in different ways, came this message, anyone who votes for the other party's candidate is abhorrent. And ultimately, that approach, it only deepens our divide. It invites us to think less of one another. Increasingly, we are losing sight of one another's humanity, of one another's worth. God's message to the Ninevites was to repent. God's message to Jonah was to get his disordered perceptions back in order. What might God's message to us be? You see, the grace of God is not a zero-sum game. It's not a competition. It is a strange and glorious gift because the more we use, the more there is. The more we give, the more we receive. And not because we're better, but because we're loved. So here's a spoiler for next week. Jonah's angry. He's angry and his perceptions and understandings of his place in the world, they are a mess. But just like God grants grace to the Ninevites, so too will God grant grace to Jonah. Because that's what grace does. It falls all over itself, multiplying itself, stretching in every direction, even the directions we aren't sure it ought to go. Because that's what God does. Speak a gracious and claiming word over and over and over again until we get it. And when we get it, we will no longer be angry by the reach of God's grace. Mm -mm. When we get it, it will be something we celebrate. Pray with me. Gracious God, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.